This is Language Made Difficult, a paraphrastic part of the SpecRam podcast. Welcome to our Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium. I'm Trey Jones, and joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds, Keith Slater. Great to be with you. Bill Sproul. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) And Sherry Wells Jensen. Hi there. And also joining us again on the program are Tim Pouliou. Hello. And Jason Wells Jensen. Hi. Welcome back, guys, and thanks for visiting us again. Let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Our theme this time is les choses françaises, and I want to apologize in advance for my terrible pronunciation as well as everyone else's. <laughs> you guys know the drill? You want to just tell us what the theme means for those of us that are totally uneducated? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Think about Frank's shoes, right? That's it. Frank's shoes. <laughs> Frank's shoes, yep. You guys know the drill. We've got three language-related items. Two are true and one is false. Again, for Sherry, two are true and just the one is false. Which one? We'll figure that out. Signs over here. Two T two T two T. Yeah, got it. Okay. Okay. And after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss and find out what is what. Item number one: the French prince of thinkers Jean-Pierre Brisset claimed that human language was derived from the language of frogs. For example, when a frog croaked "coac," it was an abbreviated form of the French question "quoi que tu dis." What are you saying? Item number two. The French call the British citronneux, based on British sailors' habit of eating limes to prevent scurvy, similar to the American term limey. Item number three. At a 2002 NATO summit, because Ukrainian President Kuchma was disliked by the U.S. President Bush and U.K. Prime Minister Blair, the countries were alphabetized in French rather than in English, so they would not be seated near each other. All right. Who'd like to go first? I'll go first while the 2T thing is still fresh in my mind. All right. Can I just get you, Trey, to say that word again that means lime? <laughs> Why? <laughs> For me, just because. Citronneux? Okay, I like that. Yeah, okay. I just wanted you to do that again because, because just because I wanted to see if you would, actually. I like that. I think it's nice. You pronounced it, you know, with a, with an ooh, and I like ooh. So I'm going to say that that one is fine because of the realistic and uh, believable pronunciation. Okay. I totally believe this alphabet thing, and I think it's fantastic. And I do like the way the Specgram interns scuttle about and squeak when we realphabetize things. <laughs> when we throw the three by five cards up in the air and we say French way, American way, Spanish way. I think that's really cool. I like that one. And I totally believe that that could absolutely happen. And why not? Even if for no reason other than it makes the intern squeak, we should just realphabetize and use a different order because why, why shouldn't we? So I think number one has too much dumbness. And even though I vaguely sort of think I'd heard this before, I think maybe it's just got too much dumbness. So I'm going to say that number one is the lie. Okay. And the other two are true. Two, true, one lie. No, I disagree. I think number one is so outlandish that it has to be true. But I think that what you say this Brisset was called the Prince of Thinkers must have been the Frog Prince of Thinkers, right? (laughs) But that one is so outlandish. It's got to be true. And like Sherry, I think that the alphabetization thing, that's great. That is just another one of those outstanding ways that multilingualism and multiliteracy contribute to world harmony. So I think, yeah, that's got to be true. But the middle one, the citronie, however you said that, that just sounds like something George Lakoff would write about. And that's got to be a fabrication. I think that one does not have the ring of veracity about it. So I'm going to say two is the false one. But Keith, that vowel, he really went, ee, ee. He did say, ee, and that could well be French. But, you know, 
why would French have an E in its word for British? That doesn't make sense. Because then the British couldn't say it properly. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. <laughs> but please don't base anything on my French pronunciation. <laughs> my uh, French professor is probably not listening, but if she is, she's crying. So, Just for the record, I think you made all these up, but I'm going with two okay. as the one that you're pretending to have made up. Okay. Bill, you're next. See, the problem I'm having is number three is the only one that sounds automatically right to me. Number one has the whole Prince of Thinkers frog juxtaposition, and it's even Prince, Frog, and French, you know? (laughs) That would make more sense if this were a fictional Frenchman that the British made up. (laughs) Okay, so it's... Are those cognate? Or it's kind of like some French person playing with the British notions of the French. It's like a French version of Dame Edna or something, right? (laughs) Even if he's a fictional character, he still might have said it. Well, that's the point. Number two, I'm not liking because my idea of what the French call the British is beefsteak because there was that whole thing about the British being so sort of overly proud of their cattle herds and stuff. I know that was a thing at some point, and you would expect, you know, wouldn't it be like... Citronier or so, who knows? <laughs> you know, I'm sort of waffling here. I'm going to turn around and sort of agree with Sherry, basically. Well, no, I guess I'm not agreeing with Sherry. I'm agreeing with part of her logic. The first one sounds totally ridiculous. So I'm going to pick it to be the one that's false. Okay. That's wow. said, it? Tim and Jason, who'd like to go next? I'll go next. Number one, this sounds so ridiculous that I think it must be true. Well, I was wondering about number one. Do French frogs really say coac? Because I always think of Aristophanes and the frogs, where they say coac coacs. When I've never heard frogs say that in English. <laughs> anyway, that sounds like. I guess the reason I believe that is there are so many stupid theories of historical linguistics out there. <laughs> in fact, just today a student was asking me skeptically, which was good about Black Athena and if there was any actual linguistic evidence to support it. And I said, no. But there are so many insane, stupid theories of historical linguistics or etymologies or so on that I can certainly imagine, uh, what was this fellow, the Prince of Thinkers, Mm -hmm. coming up with this crazed theory? Any crazy theory of etymologies or historical linguistics, I believe that someone has thought of it sometime. (laughs) I think the first one must be true. That's airtight logic. The second one is so kind of boring and bland that uh, I think it's probably not true because it's kind of reasonable that, yeah, they might say citronneur, but if they don't, then, yeah, they could see them saying beefsteak as well. The third one, I don't know what Leonid Kuchma would be doing sitting at a NATO summit. (laughs) So I'm kind of stuck with the sherry problem of there are two that I think are false. <laughs> you just go with that because then if they're truly think are false, you pick the true one, and then that sometimes works for me. <laughs> well, I think number one is true. Number two and number three, I could certainly see them reseating those guys at the summit, but I don't know why Kuchma would be sitting there since, after all, Ukraine is not in NATO. Well, maybe they were there as visitors. So. They were trying at the time. Yeah, but would they be able to get a seat at the main table, or would they have to sit at the kids' table? (laughs) As long as they didn't insist on being in alphabetical order, sure. Well, if it's in French alphabetical order, though, (laughs) is the key, right? So so I guess I'll say 
Well, yeah, maybe Keith has convinced me that number three could possibly be true. So I guess I'll say number two is false. And they don't call English people citroneur because it's not insulting enough. <laughs> There's some better term. I mean, the English call the French frogs. So the, the French could call the English shopkeepers or whatever they call them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jason? Okay, I was talked into number two, but isn't citroneur really the French word for shopkeeper anyway? <laughs> Only shopkeepers okay. who sell lemons. I think you're. <laughs> I think yeah. Um, it's hopeless. It's hopeless for me. So uh, yeah, I'll go with number two because it's the one in the middle and it's the average of one and three. Okay. You guys aren't getting many hints, so you must be right. <laughs> <What's> go- <laughs> I was gonna say <laughs> following Tim's always a good plan. <laughs> Generally, it is. <laughs> or leading Tim in my case. Mm. <laughs> so I have a predetermined order in which to discuss these. So let's start with number three. So this is one about the NATO summit. And in fact, this is true. The countries were alphabetized in French to keep the U.S. and the U.K. away from Ukraine. Do you know why Ukraine was at the NATO summit? I do not. I'm the one asking the questions here. <laughs> I would like more justification for the questions. That seems unlikely. <laughs> Next one we'll discuss will be item number one. So the French Prince of Thinkers, uh, Brisset, did in fact claim that human languages were derived from the language of frogs. This particular item is courtesy of one of our editors, Pete Bleakley. I researched this some, and Brisset was elected the Prince of Thinkers, apparently as a joke at his expense. He believed that humans descended from frogs, and thus human language came from frog language. If you read any information about him, he is a complete nutter. I would recommend to our listeners and anyone else who's interested, if you read at least a little bit of French and have a high tolerance for crazy, you can look up his book, La Science des Dieux, The Science of God. It's on Google Books, and it is full of hyperactive folk etymologies and just complete and utter nonsense. Tim is right. that Basically, any kind of crazy historical thing that someone could think of, someone has thought of, it seems. <laughs> And that leaves item number two, which is the false one. So the French do not call the British citronneux. In fact, Bill was very close. They call them le roast beef, not beef take, <laughs> but the roast beef for their love of roast beef. And there was even a time when that particular style of cooking in French was called roast beef. So you would have roast beef de mouton for roast lamb. Wow. Oh, hey, that is a great name. Yeah. Disgusting. <laughs> I have some additional interesting notes about the English calling the French frogs. And it's not because of Brisset's craziness, though that would be plenty sufficient. The most likely source is frog eater. Mm. And sometimes, uh, interestingly, frog and roast beef are sometimes listed as antonyms. Of each other? Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty in weird. In French or in English? I guess in English. <laughs> I put that on my last introductory linguistics test. Give an antonym for roast beef, and most of the students put frog. Really? <laughs> Oh. It must be true then. <laughs> I'm kind of baffled though, because I mean, who does not eat frog? <laughs> uh, people who understand the concept of mouthfeel, at least not more than once. <laughs> you cook them. <laughs> so I have a couple of other interesting etymologies of frog for French. Frog was used as slur as early as the 14th century, and in the 17th century, it was used primarily by the English for the Dutch. Some say because they lived in swamps, and then later it was applied to the French. Another origin story is that it is the fleur de lis, which some claim that uneducated Frenchmen thought it looked like a frog, or that it was three frogs saluting. <laughs> there were early Franks that had a frog as a royal symbol, so that's possible. Mm-hmm. Tell me which one of these is the lie to, because these are <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so all of those are claimed. Oh, so they're all true in some possible world. We'll never know. We'll never know. So now on to the really important part, which is the scores. Oh, can we skip the scores this time? Because, geez. You've been wanting to do that a lot lately. There's <laughs> a reason. So on with the scores. <laughs> oh, this means we'll all have to listen this time to see. <laughs> see who said what. Yeah. Which we should do anyway in self-defense, I suppose. So Bill, uncharacteristically, is bringing up the rear. We'll blame it on his debilitating illness. <laughs> so Bill has 44%. Oh, Bill. Sherry has 48%. Oh. <laughs> oh. Keith has moved so far away from chance, he's actually <laughs> even above 50%. 52. Oh. And our guests have done astonishingly well and brought the average up to 55%. And wow. I've got to start making these easier because I'm now embarrassingly so far ahead with 61%. I think we need to just change the rules a little bit. So you have to fool three people in order to get a point or something. It's just too easy for you. Mm. I think we need dumber guests. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we did not choose the right ones this time. <laughs> All right. So before we have a word from our sponsor, I just had a couple of little tidbits that have come to my attention that I wanted to share with everybody. We have discussed before slash used in texting, actually slash spelled out as a topic shift marker. And we also talked about putting a period at the end of a sentence in texting as a sign of aggression. And I had the opportunity to consult with a college age informant. She's actually my niece. And she tells me that she does interpret the period at the end of a text as being somewhat upset. But she had never heard of the slash as a topic shift. But when I described it to her, she said she and her friends actually use three dashes for the same thing. Three dashes? Yeah. Three, not two. No, because I guess that would be sort of a normal long dash, right? Well, but at the beginning of a line, it would be clear. Oh, it doesn't have to be at the beginning of a line. No, so it's in a text, uh, so it would be just in the middle. anywhere. Okay. Yeah, it'd be in yeah. the middle. Yeah. Hmm. Can we like get a sentence as a piece of data? I can't. I was doing my field work in the back of a moving vehicle while I was in the back seat. She was in the front seat and she kind of like aimed her phone at my head, but I couldn't really see anything. So I'm taking her word for it. Okay. That's good field work. You should have taken a picture of her phone with your phone and then you <laughs> <laughs> posted it on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a screenshot. Absolutely. Mm. LOL. I did not think of that. So does she use dash, dash, dash orally, or is it only a literary convention? <laughs> I was with her for almost a week, and no, she did not ever say She never that. said it that way. Dash, dash, no. dash. I'm hungry. I think it would be pronounced dash. Dash. <laughs> on dash. You have to get vocal fry in the middle of it. Mm, that is right. She's a college-age woman, so it would be dash. Dash. No. Yeah. <laughs> dash. Okay. Or maybe it's vocal fry on a long sibilant. Dash. That sounds painful. <laughs> How do you vocal fry a voiceless sibilant? We did it. <laughs> I added a bit of voicing, but it was, you know, in the spirit of things. That might be just distortion from your mic. I'm not sure. <laughs> How to fake vocal fry would be a good side topic for the next segment. I can confidently say that laryngitis is too broad a brush for vocal fry. <laughs> it, it is effective, but hard to control. It is not making you sound more youthful at all, I'm afraid. Yeah, not even a tiny bit, no. <laughs> Whereas we could advocate vocal fry as an agent of youthfulness. Youthfulness. Because <laughs> <laughs> you sound youthful. <laughs> Have you ever done like a whole episode of the podcast with vocal fry? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what a frog at the end there. <laughs> Speaking French? We've been a certain... 
Well, to save our listeners any more pain from this discussion, I think we should end this segment, and then we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor to discuss an article on how to fake a language. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by ICHL, the International Consortium of Humorless Linguists. ICHL urges you to stop listening to this drivel and get back to work. Brought to you by the National Philological Refugium and the support of listeners like you. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Well, now it's time for some language in the news. And today we're not going to actually talk about language in the news so much as language in a slightly obscure journal whose name I won't attempt to pronounce, but the eminent Americanist and historical linguist Lyle Campbell, which was published last year. And the article is entitled How to Fake a Language. And in this short article, Campbell describes his personal experiences with six different individuals who tried to fake him out by making up languages. He would come along as the inquisitive field worker and say, I'm looking for speakers of interesting languages. And these people would pop up out of the woodwork, raise their hands and say, I speak a language. And then they would proceed to give him data, which he believed to be fake. And he concluded that they were just making these things up. They weren't real languages. He said they differ from speakers of endangered languages or dying languages in that these speakers were very confident at first, but would eventually run out of ideas, become unsure of how to answer. If you try to re-elicit a word later on in your session, they couldn't remember what they said the first time. They tended to use uncommon Spanish words, hoping that you wouldn't know them. And so basically they were just trying to put on that they spoke some exotic language when in fact they didn't. Campbell goes on to give some tips for other field workers, which would be presumably to help others of us to avoid being duped in similar ways. But do we really need this advice? Have any of you ever run into a speaker who tried to fake you out? And anyway, if someone did this, that would just be semi-professional conlanging and adding to linguistic diversity, right? So what's the problem? Well, you've tried to fake us out by pretending you speak English. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I'm doing a pretty good job, I think. True, true. I mean, what do you all think? Are any of you concerned about this? I thought it was notable, not only that Campbell, but also you now ignored speculative grammarians' long history of publishing on this topic. Way back (laughs) in the 1990s, we had a couple of pieces, one called How to Spot Fabricated Data, and the other, a poem called The Tribesman, exactly about this topic, pointing out that so-called native speakers, in fact, fabricate data all the time. And in fact, that vast amounts of data, not just the trivial ones that Campbell presents, but all sorts of so-called language data are fabricated. For example, the so-called Bellacula language is clearly fabricated because no one would talk that way. Yeah, you're right. I could point out that Campbell did not cite any of that groundbreaking research in his references. Which is disturbing, given how widely read the 1990s issues of Speculative Grammarian were. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. They have been online for a very long time at this point. There's no excuse. Yeah, but I think Campbell still works with a pencil and paper. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, like Tim. (laughs) The elephant in the room here, of course, is that Campbell, despite being one of the foremost historical linguists, did not even discuss the clear character of Proto-Indo-European as an invented language. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's because he was only giving personal examples of speakers that he personally met who tried to fake him out with language data, and that's never happened to him with Proto-Indo-European. I think it only happens to Lyle Campbell. I mean, that could be, right? 
<laughs> I've never talked to another field worker that had this experience, so you can't help wondering. I mean, what is it about Lyle Campbell that attracts these kind of <laughs> these kind of miscreants? Maybe he pays more. Yep. I think it's that sign that we taped on his back. <laughs> And then I kind of wondered, how do we know that Campbell isn't just faking the fakers? How do we know he didn't just make this up? Mm. Well, let's see. <laughs> we can use him against himself. Did he start off strong and then sort of get wishy-washy <laughs> and weak at the end? <laughs> yeah, his conclusion just repeated the introduction word for word. So see, that wasn't convincing. And his <laughs> final statement is, in short, it turns out to be very easy to detect attempts to fake a language in these situations. They exhibit the characteristics pointed out here. That is kind of circular. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy for me to spot the ones that it was easy for me to spot. <laughs> You're right. Flawless. So if the goal is to find out through language what language and human cognition are like, why do we even worry about this? Let's just go up to people and say, hey, make up a language. I'll give you 10 bucks an hour. <laughs> and then we just see what they do. We analyze it. And then we can invent universal grammar and we'll be famous. Yeah, it would be like studying speech errors, right? Yeah, sort of <laughs> backward of that, yes. It's actually, come to think about it, it's a better way of getting at universal grammar, right? It's like looking at pigeons and creoles, like Derek Bickerton, get rid of all the accumulated detritus of language change and get back to just what people do naturally instead of what they've learned from people around them. And then you'll get to the actual language bio program. Oh, what people do naturally is lie. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> posers. They're all posers. Poser. <laughs> poser. <laughs> Hyperbole. They don't all lie. Only the ones talking to Lyle Campbell lie. <laughs> okay. And only a small fraction, really. So that was quite a bit of hyperbole there. Actually, for what it's worth, in my own fieldwork experience, I think everybody fakes because it's normal that you ask people vocabulary that they don't think of right off. And so they give you because they're bilingual, which is the only reason I can interview them. And so they give me the word in the language of wider communication, which in fact, everybody in their community would understand. So it may not really be a borrowing, but it is understood throughout the community. I think everybody throws in a fake sort of quote unquote borrowing now and then. So I think actually all informants are going to lie on a continuum somewhere. Hmm. And plus, it's partly just a matter of framing, I mean, particularly in terms of getting grant money. You don't say it's a fake language. You say it's entrepreneurial. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, these nascent languages that are just emerging are even more endangered than the ones people are already throwing grant money at. That's true, because if you're lying about it, you're the only speaker. So we should be throwing more money at these people. Absolutely. It's worth a much more significant investment. You have to reward the language creators. Yeah, these sounds like comments from people who make conlangs for a living. Or want to make conlangs for a living. Yeah, throw money at people who make stuff up. Like me. Yeah. And it's creative disruption. It's a super good idea. Okay. One of the things I felt as I was reading this article was, you know, here's a language problem that I think can be solved in a computational way. Unfortunately, the problem I decided to solve wasn't the one of detecting the language fakers, but rather of doing a better job faking. 
<laughs> and so I think what we have here is really a set of instructions on how to behave like a regular consultant and not like a faker, right? Yes, yes. And so I thought what you need is a way that you can generate your fake language data in a regular, you know, it, it can, it's okay if it's a little slow and it's a little halting because you don't quite remember because actually you're computing it as you're talking. But I was thinking you take a language game, right, that you're pretty good at. So Ikele, Igpe, Atenle, but something that's a little more opaque. And then that gives you the ability to transform your, your normal language into this other thing. You can add sounds to it that your language doesn't use. <laughs> okay. And then you throw in some regular syntactic permutations like right? So you had a bad Russian accent, do what Yoda would say. And then maybe just throw in a couple extra things that are easy to remember, like swapping the order of nouns and adjectives. And then there you go. You have a language that you can haltingly produce, but it's algorithmic. So you can always give the same answer given the input. You sort of take care of some of the problems that he talks about, like you know, not being able to reproduce the same result. And then also, you know, adding sounds that aren't in your, you know, like he said, the language of wider communication. I think this is basically it's a linguistic hash function. So it's not reversible. That's a perfect way to fake a language. And that was my takeaway from this. I think some of our listeners may not be aware that we had to stop sending Trey on fieldwork expeditions because he was always injuring the consultants by throwing computers at them. <laughs> my takeaway from this article was I want to know where Lyle Campbell is going these days for fieldwork because I could arrange my family vacation accordingly and pick up a little, you know. <laughs> pick up some cash. You're hired. You're hired. <laughs> What Frey sort of just did was describe my actual conlanging process for that novel that I worked on, but <laughs> it wasn't my fault. It was in the job description. And you got paid handsomely, right? Well, it was a very attractive check, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the handwriting on it was lovely. <laughs> Well, are there any other applications to this work? I mean, could we learn from these fakers and generate fake articles for a speculative grammarian? <laughs> Who would know the difference? <laughs> I guess that's what we do anyway. We better move along. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we've discussed this a couple of times before on the podcast. We do occasionally get fake, fake articles for Specgram. We have people who submit things that I think that they sincerely believe, and I refuse to publish those. <laughs> <laughs> That's not fake, fake. That's unfortunate true. Well, <laughs> sometimes it seems like they're presenting as like, oh, ha ha, this is a joke. You should print it uh -oh. just so they can then go, look, it's online. It must be true. Uh, yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. I'm trying to decide whether to point out to Tim that somebody blogged a link to the variation in the English indefinite article recently. And in the comments, there are a number of people who make comments about how stupid early linguists were. <laughs> 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 but I know that irritates Tim when people take these things seriously. <laughs> I'd say it saddens me more than irritates me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, they used colorful language to describe the stupidity <laughs> of early linguists. On the other hand, the bar is pretty low now for modern day language to be so much more sophisticated. <laughs> Okay, well, I think that's about all the time we could invest in this interesting article by Lyle Campbell, and now it's time for a word from our sponsor. 
Do all your conversations begin with references to journal papers? Is your social life decided by conference committees? Do you count watching ads for exercise equipment as seeing someone? Then we have the service for you. With an algorithm created by qualified conlangers and a few drunk PhD students in computational linguistics, LinguaDate is guaranteed to match you with your ideal linguistics partner. Just listen to these testimonials. I was originally skeptical when I mean, LinguaDate matched me with Robin, who was a dyed-in-the-wool believer in lexical functional grammar. <laughs> While I'm a hardcore role in reference grammarian, <laughs> I thought for sure LinguaDate algorithm must have been <laughs> cooked up by some incompetent coupling undergrads. <laughs> but Robin and I hit it off right away. <laughs> we both like reading long dissertations on the beach, curling up in front of the fireplace with a good descriptive grammar, <laughs> and watching the sunset and or the onset of voicing. <laughs> and of course, we are united in our burning hatred of generative grammar. <laughs> Yeah. And now, we're ready to take the next big step. We're going to co-author a paper in the fall. <laughs> Thanks, LinguaDate. This service is wonderful. I was tired of the old prescriptivist bores you find at all the other dating sites and had nearly reconciled myself to purely isolating morphology when I tried LinguaDate. Suddenly, I found myself with dates who not only inflect duals, but for trials, pockles, and plurals. Prefixation one night, suffixation the next, and weekends filled with infixation. It was a linguist's dream. And don't get me started on the joys of subjects willing to make field recordings. I have never found my LinguaMate without LinguaDate. Whether you're looking for a relationship that's merely committative, purely instrumental, dative or genitive, whether simulfactive, habitual or durative, you'll find your special adjunct or complement at LinguaDate. Disclaimer, LinguaDate takes no responsibility for the suitability or otherwise the data produced. This service is not guaranteed to help you find your partner, best friend, forever small dog, ideal research subject, or data. Conlanging and computational linguistics only suitable for those over the age of 25 and must be under supervision of a doctor. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. We have a new segment today where we discuss, instead of simplifications that could be made to English spelling, because, of course... We hear enough of that in linguistics classrooms. Everyone loves the idea of simplifying English spelling, but most people do not really consider the benefits that English spelling actually gives us. So we're going to turn things around a bit and propose ways in which spelling could be revamped, but not necessarily to simplify things, but to add detail. To give you an example of what I'm talking about, English obviously does not have a sufficient number of words that are pronounced effect. <laughs> it only has E-F-F-E-C-T and A-F-F-E-C-T. That was probably designed to help keep writers on their toes, but we all know it doesn't work because it's too easy. So I propose adding two additional forms, effect spelled with an initial I, I-F-F-E-C-T. This would be more of a conditional effect. <laughs> if and only if this happens, <laughs> there will be a result. And effect within an initial O, which is, it's kind of an accidental byproduct. It's sort of like, it's just a spinoff. <laughs> Of the process. Okay. <laughs> a set of four of these, in fact, would make it easier for everyone to remember them because there are now more slots. And so you're more sure about which slot the one with the E goes in. <laughs> <laughs> you're a great structuralist, Bill. <laughs> it's perfectly straightforward. Another example would be. Sorry, on this first example, I'm still confused because we're missing one beginning with a U. Yes, we are. And that's because starting that with a U would just be wrong. Like <laughs> <laughs> the one from outer space, the oof effect. So there's a silent unwritten O there. It's the UF effect. No, I think the effect with a U would be assimilated. It would originally have been UP effect, up effect. So it's the moving upward kind of effect. I think it's the effect that comes from getting punched in the stomach. You go, oof. <laughs> 
clearly, this is why Bill left it out, though. It's because no one could agree. The others are so clear and obvious. Yeah, that would just be like a mistaken attempt to translating oofta or something. Yeah, it's the oofta effect. What was your definition of OFF effect? It's something that's an accidental byproduct. It's like a spinoff. I don't think so, because I mean, it's clearly just like affect and effect are from uh, Latin words. This is from Latin, officere, effectus. So it should mean an obstruction, actually. But behold, it doesn't. <laughs> that's, that's the etymological fallacy, Tim. You're doing that all the time. <laughs> There's a lot of words that don't mean what they should for Latin. Everyone remember that etymological fallacy. That's the way to shut Tim down when he's smarter than you. It's the etymological <laughs> nominalist fallacy in Tim's dialect. <laughs> so I guess Bill has pretty much covered this. <laughs> I have a few other examples, but I was going to solicit new ones first. I have a couple. I think that Geminit should have two M's in it. It would be self-defining that way or self-exemplifying, which is also a good plug for the appendix to the Speculative Grammarian Essential Guide to Linguistics <laughs> with over 300 self-defining terms. But that's not why I said it. Every time I write Geminit, I put two M's in it. And I think it just looks wrong with only one. It's kind of cowardly. Shouldn't you put two G's in it too? <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's start small. I think if we're going to go in the way of uh, just modifying spelling a little bit so that it's more iconic, then I think Congress, we should lower the second vowel and use an A there. So Congress, I think, would be much more iconic, (laughs) closer to the actual nature of the body being referred to. Along those lines, hyperbole should be H-I-G-H to show you that it's very high. Hyperbole. Oh, Mm. I guess so. I actually think that hyperbole should be spelled hyperbole, (laughs) B-O-W-L, because, well, it's folk etymology or something. But anyway, an unbelievably big bowl. And if it's the kind of thing where you're exaggerating just to agree with somebody, it would be hyperbole with an initial H-A-I for just a bit of Japanese added in. Ah, gotcha. Hyperbole. (laughs) Good, good, good. Trey, should a Gemini have two M's also? You know, I'm not feeling that one. I wouldn't <laughs> object, but it doesn't need it the way... Strangely, I agree with you that Geminet feels better with two M's than Gemini does. You did agree, strangely. <laughs> <laughs> I would think if you were going to modify Gemini somehow, it'd want reduplication. It'd be Gemini. Yes, that's good. That's fun to say, too, Gemini. Yes, it is. <laughs> you could get stuck in the middle of that word. <laughs> <laughs> it's like spelling Mississippi, right? Gemini. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows how long you'd be in there. <laughs> okay, so when I first heard about this topic, it wasn't clear to me that we were talking just about spelling. We're not. And I had sort of a more of a morphological thought. And of course, one of the advantages to English spelling is it does reflect things about English morphology that simplified phonetic spelling might not do. But I was thinking about words like doctor that have that er at the end that, well, just might as well be interpreted as a comparative suffix, because then if you just have the sniffles, you can just settle for a duct. (laughs) But if for serious diseases or mortal wounds, you would go to the doctist. (laughs) We can clearly extend this from medicine to academia in general. A master's degree is just fine. And sometimes a master's degree is enough. (laughs) Sometimes you really need the masters. And it's clear to me that some of my undergraduate students at least really only want a bachelor. (laughs) (laughs) Is that because you're only a profess? (laughs) As a highly ranked person, a professist. Satchel, it rhymes with satchel. It's little, it's handy. Yeah. Carry it away. Hmm. 
I like that idea, though. Mm. That's a very good idea, yes. So I'm tired of the whole lay-lay thing, much like the effect, oh. effect, effect, effect. I think that the only way to straighten out the lay-lay thing is, in fact, to make it more complicated. So <laughs> I propose Lou, which being spoken with a back vowel clearly means to put something down on its back. So, <laughs> And Lee, which is pronounced with a front vowel, clearly means to put something on its front or face down. There's added benefits to all these things. So you can clear up things about putting your cards down. Do you loo your cards on the table or do you lee your cards on the table? Mm. And that would save us some time to clear that up. And I was thinking about how these apply to being in a hammock. You loo in a hammock, mostly. And then that makes me think that we need past tenses and past participles. So as a side benefit, the past tense of loo is lewd, which I think is handy. <laughs> and then the past participle would, of course, be loon. So I have mm-hmm. loon in my hammock all day long. I think that would really assist us in cleaning up the Lilai thing. I think that's Canadian usage. <laughs> the loon? Loon. Yeah. Loon, eh? I think you're right. But with a back vowel, why isn't it lot? I don't know. It just isn't. It it's wrong that way. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but you are abolishing the transitive-intransitive distinction. Wouldn't it be clearer if we had also a high-low or a rounded-unrounded distinction still to maintain transitive-intransitive, <laughs> along with the front and back? So that you could have la for to lie down on your front versus <laughs> law to lie down on your back. <laughs> Fortunately, we have lots of vowels to work with. We do, yeah. <laughs> and we could even use central vowels for to lie down on your center. <laughs> or to curl up. Like to wad something up and then drop it is lur. Lur, lur. No, I think lur would be to lie down in an unconscious state so you don't know if you're on your front or your back. Or, or that could be the medial passive form. <laughs> oh, yeah. We need one of those. But don't all of these, since they involve a lateral liquid, mean to lie on your side? Ooh. Both sides. Well, yeah. just one for me. When I say an L, I have closure on one side and not on the other. Well, no, I think given that the blockage is in the middle, the lateral, interestingly, means neither side. I think it means front or back. So I was trying to think about putting something on its side, and then I thought maybe we needed a default. So then I was thinking of something like la, but I wasn't sure. Maybe the default has no vowel at all, just l. That makes sense. So I want to have a digression here. <laughs> how many of you were testing your tongue to see how many sides you let your laterals me, go me, through? Me. I think I just do one. I just do one. It's uh, closed on the right, open on the left. All right. Who else is a, a righty? No, I close the left and open the right, I think. Oh, you're both defective. If both sides are I'm open. I'm fairly sure mine's both sides. Yep. Yep. Both sides, too. You're making it up. No. It's not physically possible, is it, Tim? <laughs> I asked Lyle Campbell, who knows about L's just from his name, and he said no one does that. <laughs> was he faking that, or was that a real thing that he said? Hmm. He was exaggerating. <laughs> I mean, he was speaking in hyperbole. <laughs> hyperbole or hyperbole or hyperbole? Hyperbole. Hyperbole. So getting back to the topic at hand, I have one that I think might upset Tim a little because it's going to probably violate some Latin etymological thingamajig or something. But I always like the fact that the word continuum has two U's in it. And I thought the plural continua, it ends in a schwa. That doesn't have to be an A. It could be another U. That would be cool. (laughs) Continua, right? Continua. Or you could add an H. Just to be absolutely clear about it. Well, the H is good for etymological purposes, <laughs> since that's what it is, etymologically. I win! Yay! <laughs> what do you mean so that's just... what it is etymologically? You mean that's what it was etymologically? 
That's a good point. <laughs> You're still bound by this notion of temporality, pre <laughs> notion. You're into Einsteinian linguistics, are you? But it should be an H with a subscript two after it. <laughs> oh, it's semantic. It is, yeah. It's a semantic coefficient. And how would one pronounce that if one were able? Um, how would you pronounce it? Probably, but probably a pharyngeal fricative. But I think uh is fine. I want to hear the whole word. Say the whole word for us. Continue. <laughs> no, the reconstructed form. <laughs> and be sure to pronounce the star. <laughs> the star is one of those clicks that's only pronounceable by people in Southern Africa and other humans are incapable of pronouncing those sounds. I saw that on TV, so it must be true. <laughs> it depends on their altitude, but go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm done. I've said the word as close as I can get to the actual pronunciation. Okay. I think somebody had suggested that there's complementary of various sorts. Was anyone thinking of bringing that up? Yes. And, you know, it extends to complement, of course, because... If you talk about grammar, you end up talking about compliments with an E in the middle. And then, of course, students frequently, quite logically, will then write compliment with an I in the middle for that, which you have to make comments about it. But we should obviously also have the term compliment spelled with an initial C-A-L-M. So you have a compliment and a complimentary thing that you give somebody. And it's something that you give somebody to calm them down. Like people at a restaurant that are getting upset because their order has not arrived yet, and you give them some free frog legs or something. Well, that's that's complimentary. Yeah, that's complimentary. It calms them down. You should extend this to one more, and that would be starting with a C A L M, but having the I in the second syllable, mm -hmm. and that complimentary would be when you go out of your way to say something nice about someone to calm them down. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Clearly, you're the smartest one in the room. It's okay. <laughs> and there's another form that I think is lacking here, and that is complimentary spelled K-A-M. And then I don't care about the rest. Well, yeah, I want the I because there are a number of languages in different parts of the world that are written K-A-M, com. So there's one in uh, there's a Niger Congo language and there's uh, the com. Well, it's pronounced gum. Gum die is one of the branches of uh, oh, one of those Asian language families. And there's Kam Tibetan and uh, there's another Tibeto-Burman language. So I think that would be a nice way to say something nice about someone's language. And of course, it would be nice for linguists to have a term like that. Oh, that's Aww. lovely. <laughs> Could we actually distinguish two meanings of complementary? Like this entree is complementary compliments of the house by having two Ps there, because that's the only one where we say these tickets have been comped. You don't say that I comped him, I gave him a compliment. I said uh, how handsome or how smart he was. Now, you can't use comp for that, but you can use it for to provide something gratis. Right. Hmm. For that one, you put in the H sub three. <laughs> <laughs> that would just imply rounding. <laughs> <laughs> this round's on me. <laughs> it's right after the P. It just makes it extra rounded. If you're extra rounded right after the P, you should probably consult your doctor. <laughs> okay, moving on. I think that might call for a doc test. <laughs> yes, you would a need doc a doc test. <laughs> An additional one that might be useful for linguistics is we have already the word rigmarole. But if we're allowed to use kind of a British or 
U.S. coastal pronunciation. You could also spell the word R-I-G-O-R-M-A-R-O-L-E. And that's all of this extra stuff you do to make it look formalized. That's when you put on your math suit? Yes, that's putting on the math suit. That's time for the rigmarole, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. An excursus on formalism. And I think different classes of linguists have the rigmarole section at different parts of their paper, right? Some people just start with it and other people yes. save it to the last section. And yeah, you can tell what kind of linguist you are by where it belongs. <laughs> and I suppose if it's a Lyle Campbell paper where he got his data, where he unfortunately got his data, that's the data section and is the rigmarole section. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bill, you still had one more. Well, yeah, that one, it might be kind of useful. We have the word prophetic with the PH to prophesy to say something that foretells the future. It might be useful also to have prophetic with a double F in the middle, which is when you predict something's going to happen based on your academic experience. Now, this one would end up being much more common because it doesn't have to actually happen. In fact, it's very likely that, particularly in social sciences, that it will not actually happen. But still, it's kind of a useful term to have. So this is based on professor or proffer or what? What's professor. This? It's based oh, on professor. professor. Yeah. And I think if you're going to have prophetic in that form, then you need to have a contrasting prophemic, which would be a different kind of professor who they'd be in the same department, but they wouldn't get along. <laughs> <laughs> Or it's just the general category that it's like, oh, all right, he's predicting doom. That's just kind of like the same doom that other person was predicting, but using different words, right? (laughs) It's just the same doom meme. (laughs) I wonder if we could at the same time, this is contrary to the whole idea of your adding more spellings, but if we could get rid of the term prophetic vol with the TH and instead just call that a prophetic vol instead, because it is, after all, spoken before the rest of the word. That's the point. <laughs> but I always had more fun calling that a prosthetic vowel. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good folk etymology. Well, it also works really well for the fake languages. <laughs> Absolutely. So I went with morphology again here, and I was trying to clear up this thing about the names of all the months, because this has bothered me for a long time, because soon my students, every once in a while, someone will discover this whole thing where December is really 10, right? Mm-hmm. 10 deaths. September is really nine and October is really eight. September is really sept seven. And so my first attempt is a simplification. We should get rid of August and that could be September, right? For six. And then July would be Queen Ember because we get the Queen Ember if you prefer. Mm. And then June, we just go, we just keep counting backwards. We get June would be Quadamber and April and May would be Bimber and Trimber, right? <laughs> and then March, because how can you resist this one? would have to be manamanamber. <laughs> just fun to say. And so then we're all leaving on to one, and you'd think that would be a problem, but actually this is really working to our advantage because we just take the name away from February altogether because it doesn't deserve one. Because A, it's little, and B, it's miserable, and no one wants to talk about it anyway. Or it could be the month which shall not be named, if you prefer. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. I don't really care. And then January, this is a golden opportunity. So January, we need to name after a famous linguist because obviously we could have Sapimber or Sosamber. <laughs> I think really what we really want to do is say Specgrember. 
for the first time. I like that. I like Spec Grammar. Yeah. I like that. But I thought when you got to March's, whatever you called it, Manama Number, I thought you were going to say that now we don't need January and February and we could just dispense with them entirely. That would be the metric system. I'd be happy to not have any January or February because it never got above freezing those two months. <laughs> Well, after the comments that Sherry made about the second month, now I'm wanting to call it Chomskyweary. <laughs> <laughs> but just never say its name. <laughs> no, but that kind of flows, actually. Chomskyweary mm. is not bad, yeah. Chomskyweary's good. Chomskyweary with the silent seven or something in the middle of a disturb. <laughs> or an H sub four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a systematic funny. <laughs> I have to say that maybe it was the counting backwards that messed me up. But when you were getting back after Bimber and Trimber, I was expecting the month before that to be Unabomber. <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't. <laughs> no, I think a more Muppet spin on the whole thing. I think mm-hmm. my number is way better. <laughs> I thought if we were sticking with cardinal numbers like December, then March could be Umber and April could be Dumber. <laughs> Just to add to the grandeur of the English language, you would have to pronounce it Dumber. Yeah, well, that's how I pronounce that word anyway. (laughs) Dumber. (laughs) (laughs) That's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. Thanks to our guests, Jason and Tim, for hanging out with me and the rest of the Ling Nerds. Join us next time when we will discuss the appropriateness of comparing works of literature that are less than 18 years old and the social and emotional costs of such underage intertextual relations. You could just pretend that you read it because, after all, it's about faking. That's what the rest of us will be doing. <laughs> yeah. Have some of you read enough of it that you can discuss it? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> okay, that's fine. You sound like you're introducing yeah. something we all should have read for class. <laughs> that's generally the way I start classes, yes. <laughs> have enough of you read this to discuss, or should we just move right on to the quiz? The, the alphabeti- alphabetization thing, which I can't pronounce, but I can alphabetize it. Something that my high school French teacher told me about the French national symbol, that you should say fleur de lis, uh, not fleur de lis, because the word is pronounced lis, but also fleur de lis is a flower of the bed and therefore a prostitute. Okay. I can't do it. <laughs> trying to do Pig Latin in a bad Russian accent. <laughs> <laughs> so through the magic of editing... All right, anybody got anything else? No. Mercy. <laughs>